0: I hope you all have your notes there, and you can see that today we're continuing in the what are called the Beatitudes, uh, and uh, we're going to be looking at the sixth one today, and that's in verse eight. As, as usual, I'm going to read though uh, verses one through ten of chapter five of Matthew. We're told that seeing the multitudes, our Lord Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, came to him, um, <clears throat> excuse me. then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, I ask on my behalf and on the behalf of my brothers and sisters in christ that you would fill us with your spirit now and give us understanding so that we might comprehend what we need to learn from our lord jesus words we thank you lord that we have his words recorded for us in scripture we thank you for your word lord that is an anchor to our souls it in this relativistic age in which we live, where people question what truth is, we know there is absolute truth because you exist and you have revealed it to us. And for that, we are grateful that we don't have to be cast about as so many others are in the stormy seas of relativism that we live in these days. Lord, we just pray that you will fill us with your Spirit so that we might not just understand what you have to say to us through this text, but live it. Take it to heart. Lord, we pray that you'd convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Speak to our hearts, we pray. We ask these things for our good, most of all for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A 19th century Russian writer named Ivan Turgenev once said this, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. I think this highlights uh, an important truth that we're going to be wrestling with today, which is that even those who appear to be the very best of men are still sinners. What is in their hearts is still terrible. Yet Jesus says that there are some we call pure in heart. So they're not so terrible. And he says that these people are blessed by God. He said that in verse 8, as we saw, when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, in trying to understand this particular beatitude as best we can, we're going to seek, once again, to answer some questions. Three questions. First of all, who are the pure in heart? And secondly, how does one become pure in heart? And then thirdly, how or when shall the pure in heart see God? What does Jesus mean by that? So first of all, who are the pure in heart? Now the word translated pure here, when Jesus speaks of the pure in heart, literally means to be clean or free from dirt. Clean, right? Or to be pure in the sense of being without mixture and free from adulteration. So uh, pure gold with no, nothing mixed into it would be kathras, right, pure. And figuratively, it means to be free from wrongdoing or hypocrisy. And So here Jesus specifies that those who are part of the kingdom are pure, but he says pure in heart. And I think he's speaking about those who are sincere in their devotion to God. They don't have divided loyalties. There's nothing mixed in with their devotion to God that taints it. Uh, their righteousness is not fake. They're genuine people. They're concerned with being genuinely righteous people. They, their concern isn't simply to appear righteous to other people, but to actually be righteous. Righteous. And I think that that's what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of the pure in heart, those kinds of people. And I think both the Old Testament passage to which Jesus alludes and the context of his teaching in Matthew make it clear that this is what he's talking about when he's speaking of pure, pure in heart people. I think the Old Testament text that he's alluding to is found in the book of Psalms and Psalm 24. And I'm going to read there verses 3 through 5, and you should have these references in your notes so that you can follow along easier here. Here's what that text says. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? The idea is who's worthy of that? Right? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And actually, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used that Jesus is using in Matthew 5, katharos. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing. So there's this idea, blessed are the pure in heart, right? For he shall receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I think it's pretty clear that this is the passage that Jesus had in mind when he spoke this beatitude that we have in Matthew 5, 8. And notice that the pure in heart in this passage is the person who has not lifted up his soul to an idol and has not sworn deceitfully. That is, he he doesn't have a divided heart toward God, which seeks to serve idols as well. He doesn't come to church on Sunday, Right? In our day and age, we'd put it this way, and worship God and then spend the rest of the week uh, worshiping the idol of money or sex or something else, right? He's consistent in his devotion to God. His life isn't sliced up like a pie, and devotion to God is just one little piece of it. His devotion to God permeates his whole life. He's not fake in that sense. Nor does he have a deceitful heart that pretends to honor God when taking an oath, as we saw there, while having no real intention to honor what he says when doing so. He's not a person who says what people want to hear then, right? And doesn't really mean it. He's not that kind of person. He's not a fraud. The same ideas about what Jesus means by pure in heart here, I think, being unhypocritical. And being sincere in your devotion to God can be found later in Matthew's account of Jesus' opposition to the Pharisees. By the way, his opposition to the Pharisees is a part of the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount in which these Beatitudes are given. In fact, he's going to go on and say to them that they're going to have to have a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees' righteousness was a fraud. It was fake. It was to be seen by men, but they weren't sincere in their hearts. And he really let him have it, and we'll we'll probably go through more of Matthew five and get into that as we go, because I don't think I'm going to be able to stop now that I've gotten into it. But, but in Matthew twenty three, he'll bring it up again, and uh, he says some things that smart if uh, people are actually paying attention. He says, beginning in verse twenty five, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees!" Now that's a uh, when you pronounce a woe on somebody, it's a it's a statement of judgment. This is language that goes back to the Old Testament. So saying woe to you at the start should tip them off that what's coming is going to be pretty tough language. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. He's using their custom of cleaning things ritually as an application to themselves. They're like cups that are clean on the outside, but inside they're full of dirt. Then he goes on to say, in a pretty graphic metaphor, he was a master of metaphor, our Lord Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the opposite of the pure in heart that Jesus is talking about. And so the question that faces us, each one of us, is simply this, Am I what I appear to be? Can I say that I have a sincere devotion toward God that's not encumbered by uh, divided loyalties? Do I strive for purity of heart even more earnestly than I seek to be seen as righteous by others? Now, it's not bad to want to be seen as righteous by others. Um, so long as it is genuine righteousness that comes from a pure heart. Uh, In fact, in one sense, that's what we live for, right? To be seen as righteous by others. But we don't start from the outside in and put on a front. Any righteousness that others see is something that comes from a pure heart. It's genuine righteousness that we're concerned about as followers of Christ. Lots of people out there are faking it. Right? But we don't want to be among them. In fact, although Jesus says that it is only the pure in heart that will see God, as we'll discuss later, perhaps it would be good also to notice that not only will the pure in heart see God, but we could also say that there's a sense in which others will only see God through the pure in heart. <laughs> for those who are pure in heart, will have an impact on those around them, and they will elicit a response, either positive or negative. I'm going to push some of the application here a little bit more. First of all, the positive response that the pure in heart are expected to have, according to Jesus, may be seen in the following context of the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus says that they're to be a witness that leads others to glorify God. We can't do that if we're not displaying righteousness that comes from the heart. See, a righteousness that the Pharisees had that's outward but isn't sincere turns lots of people off. How many times have you heard people say, I don't want to go to church anymore, it's full of hypocrites? They probably run into a lot of Pharisees. Of course, I would also remind them that at least they know where hypocrites belong. right? If they're going to get help, they need to be in church. That's the place where hypocrites can learn to not be hypocrites. Hence the sermon today, right? But that's another issue. Um, But look what Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. He says, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are in the kingdom, right? To believers, to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Yeah, we want our righteousness to be seen by men. We just want to make sure it's genuine righteousness that they're seeing and not a fraud. As uh, Robert Murray McShane once wrote for ministers, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. What McShane says is true not just of ministers, of course, but of Christians, all Christians. We are most useful to God when we have a purity of heart that shows in our lives. On the other hand, we can also be a detriment to the kingdom of God through Hypocrisy in our lives. This was alluded to earlier. As one old anecdote puts it, a rather pompous-looking deacon was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. And he asked them this question, Why do people call me a Christian? After a moment's pause, one youngster said, Maybe it's because they don't know you. You Sadly, there are many Christians about whom that could be said. <laughs> right? The, the negative response that the pure in heart are expected to have, and I say expected to have, was revealed by Jesus even before he spoke of the positive impact that we saw in verses 13 through 16. In fact, he touches on it in the final beatitude in verse 10. And there I'll read He goes into more explanation of it, too, in a couple of verses there. Beginning in Matthew 5.10, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is trying to remind them. Such a reaction to genuinely godly people is nothing new. happen to the prophets of old, it's going to happen to you. So note that Jesus envisions only one of two responses and no middle ground. Either people will despise and persecute us or they will see our good works and glorify God. In this Sermon on the Mount, those are the only two reactions Jesus expects and says that we should expect. If we're really being genuinely righteous people, Some questions for ourselves. What kind of response, then, do our lives elicit? Do people see Christ in us clearly enough to be forced to take a position one way or the other with respect to our witness? Or do we just live our lives getting no reaction at all? Because we're really not being a witness at all. When we have a, a time where we could speak into a situation and say what righteousness would demand, we don't say anything. People think we're just like they are. We go along to get along. Here's a big issue that right now. we got men demanding we call them she, her. Women demanding that we call them he and him. A righteous person cannot do that. Because it's a lie. It's not true. A righteous person would say, I love you, but I can't do that for you. I cannot feed your self-deception. I love you too much to do that. And we're going to get one of two responses. If we do that. Really positive or really negative. Most people are not going to say, well, that doesn't matter. Not in this culture, not right now. That should be the way we are. We're not trying to get negative responses, right? We just know it's going to come if we're being like Christ who got all kinds of negative responses. More people hated him than loved him when he said these things to the disciples even though he hated no one. In a sinful world, where even the what's in the hearts of the best of men is terrible, this is what we can expect if we're righteous. We have to ask ourselves, is our righteousness so genuine and clearly indicative of a pure heart that it brings at one and the same time aggravation and even persecution for those who resent being exposed by it because that's what's really going on. They're being shown up. But on the other hand, worship toward God by those who seek such righteousness themselves or at least know that they need God somehow, right? Or maybe their need for God is exposed by the righteousness they see in us. It's attractive to them. They're drawn to it like a moth to a flame, because the Spirit's working in their heart through our witness. Those are the kinds of reactions we can expect. And we'd like to think there's a middle ground, a big middle ground, because we like to think that the road to heaven is the broad path. But Jesus says that's the one that leads to destruction. It's the narrow one that leads to life. And there aren't many on that road and they don't particularly like the ones who are on it. You just have to keep that in mind. Don't be surprised. Jesus is letting us know. If you get a bad reaction to your righteousness, you're just going to pursue righteousness. Pure, a pure heart all the more. And this leads us to our second major question. How does one become pure in heart? If we want the blessing that comes with being pure in heart and to see God, then we're going to want to be pure in heart, and so how do we become that? There's basically a two-part answer to this question. First, we have to recognize that we can't make ourselves pure in heart. The Lord made this quite clear through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. To give one of many examples you could give from scripture, Jeremiah 13.23, and I just love the way he put it, can the Ethiopian Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you may also do good who are accustomed to do evil. You can make yourself good when a leopard can change its own spots or a black man can Just by deciding to change his skin color. Jeremiah even goes on to say that we can't even fully know our own hearts because we're so deceptive. Jeremiah 17 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Of course, the next verse will go on to say, God knows the heart. He's the only one who can know our hearts. He has to show us what's in our hearts, right? But we have to recognize that in our natural state, our hearts are wicked. They're so wicked and full of self-deception that our hearts keep us from knowing what's really in them. (laughs) They lie to us too much for us to trust our own hearts, to tell us the truth about our own hearts, right? We're wicked through and through, and we can do nothing in our own strength to change that, any more than a leopard can decide to change its spots. So then, as Jesus has already stressed in the first beatitude, remember, in verse 3, we need to recognize our spiritual poverty. Remember, there's a progression in, in, the, in these beatitudes. We recognize our spiritual poverty, or that we're poor in spirit, and then we mourn for that state and the sin that comes with it, and we're comforted. That leads us to be meek people and a, a deeper desire for Righteousness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness comes into us through the power of God's spirit. And we become merciful people then because we recognize that we're no different than anyone else. There but by the grace of God go I and our hearts are filled with mercy toward them then. And then we're the kind of people that want to be pure in heart. We recognize from the beginning we can't do it ourselves. Second, then, we must recognize that only God can make us pure in heart. He can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves by his grace. And this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. For example, David teaches us that we're born sinners... And then only God can give us a clean or a pure heart. This is in Psalm 51. There in verses 5 and 6, he writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now he doesn't mean by that that his mother conceived him in an act of sin. He's talking about in the psalm going back as far as he can imagine himself existing as a human being and still being a sinner at that time. From conception, he was a sinner that's what he means as Paul would say we're we're born children of wrath in Ephesians it's the same thing that David was saying here and then he says behold you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom and then he goes on to pray in verse 9 hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities he's asking God to forgive him for his sins And then he says, create in me a clean or pure heart. And there in the Septuagint, it's the same word that Jesus used, "Katharos." Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Now here he's talking about someone who has been a follower of God and a believer for a long time and has fallen into terrible sin. And was unrepentant for a while. And he had come back to God recognizing that Only God could forgive him and give him a clean heart, a pure heart. So sometimes believers can fail. They can fall, right? But the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the believer knows where a pure heart can be gotten. A believer knows he or she cannot give himself or herself, notice only two genders there, a pure heart. Only God can do it, and they run to God for that pure heart. And that's what David did. He's a good example to us of, of that. That's, that's why God had him right, Psalm 51, for us. And we too can ask God for a pure heart. That's really all we have to do is ask. God has assured us that he'll do this for us in the promise of the new covenant. He did it for David. But we know he'll do it for us too, partly because in the new covenant, he promised he would. There's a passage about the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, that says this, speaking of the days of the new covenant and his fulfillment. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh They were hard-hearted, right? I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, he says, and give you a heart of flesh, the kind of heart a person ought to have, right? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Notice what he's saying. He'll give them a clean heart, a pure heart, a new heart, and then he will enable them to walk in his ways, They won't have to do it in their own strength. He'll give them the ability to do it. The only one who can do that for us is God. He wants a righteousness that comes from the pure heart. He wants genuine righteousness, and he gives us the pure heart to ensure that. And that's a part of the blessings we have in Christ in the new covenant that was fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of this. Idea in Titus 2, 11 through 14, when he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness of worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. The grace of God brings this salvation that creates in us a pure heart, enabling us to live out genuinely righteous lives. Not perfectly, as David was an example, right? But consistently. And as we grow in Christ, hopefully more and more consistently, Perfection, Paul will teach us, comes with the resurrection in the future. But we can praise the Lord that he can and will make us pure in heart just as he promised. And how will he do it? Through faith in Christ. We have to recognize we can't do it for ourselves, that we can do nothing to save ourselves. And thank God for that, Uh, right? Because if it depended on me... Through my own efforts to save myself, I'd be doomed because I am fickle. I am incapable of genuine righteousness, really even once, because my heart is so bad in and of myself. Thank God I don't have to earn it, his salvation, that he, he does everything that needs to be done for me to be saved through Jesus Christ, my Lord, through his sinless life, his death on the cross for my sins, his resurrection from the dead, And then he ascended to the Father's right hand and he's there forever to intercede for me as one of his followers. Looking after me all the time. Convicting me when I'm less pure in heart than I ought to be and reminding me that he can make me pure in heart. He can cleanse me anew of my sins. What a great Savior we have. And we're going to see him one day. Paul said so, didn't he? We're looking for the blessed hope, and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we saw? Well That leads us to our third and final question. How or when shall the pure in heart see God? It's first of all important to recognize that no one can actually see God, in a sense. I think Thomas Constable has rightly observed that, quote, no one has seen God in his pure essence without some type of filter, The body of Jesus was just such a filter. Seeing God is a synonym for having intimate knowledge of and acquaintance with him. I think he's on to something there. I think the Apostle Paul, or John rather, the Apostle John in John one eighteen, would agree. I think uh, this is very clear in what he wrote in John one eighteen. No one has seen God at any time. Now, there are Old Testament passages that talked about people seeing God. And John knows that. He's not being inconsistent. Notice what he goes on to say. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And that's always been true, even in the Old Testament saints. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who was revealing God to the people. When they saw the angel of the Lord, that was was the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing. It has to be because they called that angel of the Lord God and said that they saw God when they saw him. John knows that, and he's trying to tell us, they saw the sun. This is what Jesus has always done. We can only see God through Jesus Christ. And those who believed in him during his earthly ministry, who would be among the pure in heart, right, true believers, they were blessed to see God through Jesus Remember the interaction that Jesus had with Philip in this regard. In John fourteen eight and nine, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now they didn't have John 1 18, because it hadn't been written yet, right? Uh, Jesus said to him, Have you been or have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? an interesting way to answer his question or his demand. And then he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say show us the Father? Philip is basically saying, show me God and that'll be enough. He said, if you don't recognize that you've seen God in me, you don't know me yet. (laughs) That's a basic answer because that's who the Father is that they're talking about here. But we, of course, see see God through his word and through his working in our lives. Yet the vision of God about which Jesus spoke in the Beatitudes ultimately awaits the future. I think that's what he has in mind here. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you can see indications of this. Even, even Job looked forward to seeing God in the future resurrection about which he spoke in faith in the midst of very severe trials and suffering. Um, Job said this in in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. He believes his Redeemer is going to come to earth. And he did. Jesus did come. And after my skin is destroyed, because he had, remember, he had, been attacked with all kinds of horrible things, and one of them was a terrible skin disease, and he thinks he's going to die from it, right? And after my skin is descri- destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. This body may be gone, but I know still, in my flesh I will see God. There has to be a resurrection then, right? Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, where this redeemer who comes to earth, he will in his flesh see him. And then he says, how my heart yearns within me. He was pure in heart and he wanted to see God and he knew he would. A lot of people forget about Job and and the theology that Job apparently had. It was much deeper than people might realize. Of course, Job probably didn't know that he would see God in the resurrected and ascended Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to come, but he knew a Redeemer was coming. And he certainly expected to see God after his own resurrection. We share that same expectation, as the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8, love never fails. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And it's important to know when that which is perfect has come, what that means. Well, he's going to clarify that for us, thankfully, so we don't have to wonder he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, referring back to the time when the, that which is perfect has come, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Here he's referring to seeing Jesus in the future. He's referring to that blessed hope he spoke to Timothy about, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see him face to face. The Apostle John also spoke of this time when we'll see our Lord Jesus. He said in 1 John 3, beginning of verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't get salvation at all. (laughs) Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, referring to Jesus, and this is a way of referring to his second coming, the revelation of Jesus in the future. He says, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I think what he means by this, why is it that we know we'll be like him? Well, the reason we know we'll be like him is that we'll see him as he is. You see, the only way we can see him as he is, is to first be made like him. Paul calls this glorification in Romans 8. When we're given new resurrection bodies and resurrection eyes, we can look upon the resurrected Lord and see him as he is. That's the implication of what he's saying here. And he says, and everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. It's interesting that the pure in heart are blessed, Jesus said, for they shall see God. But the knowledge that they'll see God Leads them to want to be more pure in heart. Longing for the day when they'll look look on him with pure eyes and see him as he is. Truly is. Of course, this happens again when he comes again, as John says. He had a vision of this in the future where Jesus was described as the lamb because he died for our sins. And this is in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. John says uh, that he was shown a pure river of the water of life. He's thinking here of the he's getting this vision of the heavenly Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And this water of life was clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. They're referring to our Lord Jesus. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, referring to the Lamb, Jesus. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's talking of the time when the pure in heart will see God. Through Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God to man. That's what he's always been. That's what he ever shall be. So, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who've recognized that we're sinners who cannot save ourselves, who've recognized our poverty of spirit, We've called upon him to save us by his grace, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know one day we'll see him face to face. We know one day we will see God. And we won't be confused about it like Philip was, at least for a time, right? There won't be any confusion at all. We'll know who we're looking at just as he knows us this is the great blessing bestowed upon the pure in heart which is again just another way of referring to those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ remember uh, as we were reminded in our reading of Ezekiel we've experienced the fulfillment of that promise he's taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh he's put a new spirit within us he's given us his holy spirit He's cleansed our hearts, and he continues to cleanse and purify our hearts. The more we long for Jesus' return and to see him face-to-face, the more we long for that purity of heart. And the more we long for that purity of heart, the more we can be assured that we will see him face-to-face. Nice how that works out, isn't it? I hope this has been an encouragement to you quite a thing to be pure in heart it's hard for me to imagine that I'm even viewed that way at all by God let alone another human being that I know, right, anyone because I see all my flaws But I remember something Augustine once wrote God knows how when he looks at us to hate in us what we have made and to love in us what he has made that's the key to a proper self-image as a Christian. If you're like me and you're really good at seeing what you've made in yourself and seeing what's wrong with you inside, but you're really bad at seeing what God is doing in you, ask God to forgive you for that. Because if you're a follower of Christ, he's done something good in you and he deserves to be thanked for it. He deserves the glory for it. It's good to be humble and see your weaknesses but not if they blind you to what he's doing in your heart that's genuine and real if you're a believer in Christ he has done something in your heart and he'll continue to do it so don't lose heart don't become discouraged just keep going back to him as the only one who can continually cleanse you Holy Father, if there are some here like me today who are believers who struggle with this because we're better at seeing what's wrong with us than what's right. Some of us have weak consciences and we, they plague us and we accuse ourselves constantly of sin, sometimes even of things that aren't sins. And we have a hard time thinking you could even really love us. We have a hard time seeing anything good that you've done in us And that's a terrible sin. So forgive us for that, I pray. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to just relax in your grace. Enjoy knowing that what you've done for us is real and that you'll continue to do it and to desire for others to see it in us as a pure and holy thing. Help us not to put on a front, but to be genuine. And I just want to thank you as the pastor of Emmanuel that there are so many people here that are genuine. This is a group of people that what you see is what you get. They're real. They don't, they're not fake. And I get to be privileged to be among them. And they're an encouragement to me always that you really can change us and you can change me and Lord, I pray that anyone here has not come to know you, that today he or she will come to you and say, I can't do it, Lord. I've been trying to change myself. I've been play acting with a sincere desire to be different, but I can't do it. Only you can change me. Forgive me for thinking that I could. Forgive me for my sins. Help me to trust you. In your grace and not in myself, give me a pure heart. Cleanse me from my sins because Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead that I might have everlasting life as a free gift, forgiveness, full and free forever. And Lord, we'll give you the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers because we know, we know in the depth of our soul, you alone deserve all the glory for anything good in us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your very kind attention.